Why is seminary so expensive? At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, we are committed to the reform of theological education toward meeting the needs of churches across the globe. Men of God cannot serve their churches well if they are burdened with tens of thousands of dollars in student loans from seminary. At CBTS, you can receive a robust theological education for nearly four times less than other institutions. To find out more about how you can receive an accredited theological degree at a cost that you can afford, visit cbtseminary.org. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Welcome back. We're going to begin our second lecture. You should have the PowerPoints there. Um, Our lecture for the second lecture is entitled The Centrality of the Gospel in Evangelism and Missions. Before we go further into that, I just wanted to read again from the Scripture, Revelation chapter 7. Here we see the end goal, and it's what is seen in heaven. Revelation 7 verses 9 to 12 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, and wisdom and thanksgiving, and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's just pray together briefly. Heavenly Father, again, as we come to study the role of evangelism and missions, and we think about the centrality of the gospel, we're reminded that all that we do and all things are for your honor, for your glory, for you are the glorious God. And we look forward to that day when our own voices will be joined with all of your saints, past, present, future, before your throne, to give you the glory, the honor, and the praise that is your due. Help us now in this hour, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Said we're discussing the centrality of the gospel in evangelism and missions. Of course, the aim and the goal of all missions, as in all things, is the glory of God. But it's important that in what we're doing, that the gospel is kept at the center. Now, let's be clear, the the term gospel-centered certainly in our day is perhaps overused. And we say gospel-centered everything. Marriage, gospel-centered church, gospel-centered leadership, and can use it in all, all sorts of ways. But I think it's important for us to recognize when we're talking about evangelism and missions, certainly the gospel has to be kept central. So, that's what we're going to think about uh, in this lecture. And before we go on, you'll notice in the second slide, foundational principles for evangelism. I mentioned that uh, the supremacy, the supreme object uh, for our evangelism is God and His glory. 
Um, and here, these are some principles that are given to us as we think about evangelism and the need to keep the gospel central. Some principles that come from uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He gives five different principles. This is what he says. One, the supreme object of the work of evangelism is to glorify God, not to save souls. Though certainly that's part of it, but the supreme object, the, the first thing is God and His glory. And He is glorified through the salvation of sinners. And also His justice will be glorified through the damnation of those who are lost. Second thing, the only power that can do this work is the Holy Spirit, not our own strength. And so it's not through our own ingenuity, our own intellect, our own abilities, but it is through the Spirit of God working to draw men to Himself, regenerating, and even enabling us to do the work of evangelism and missions. The third principle he gives is the one and only medium through which the Spirit works is the Scriptures. Therefore, we reason out of the Scriptures like Paul did. Christ, as our confession says, calls people, calls His elect in through the working of the proclamation of the Word and accompanied by the Spirit. And so, the Spirit works through the Word. The fourth thing, these preceding principles give us the true motivation for evangelism, a zeal for God, and a love for others. So those are the two things, you think of the two great Commandments to love God and to love our neighbor, that also is what motivates us in evangelism. Of course, our supreme motivation is God's glory. And then the last principle is there is a constant danger of heresy through a false zeal and employment of unscriptural methods. And here we're getting to why I'm bringing these points, and that is there have been and are in our day, as in Jesus' day, the Apostle Paul's day, um, even in the Old Testament. False prophets, false teachers, heresies, and even those perhaps who have a true zeal in the sense that they're, they're zealous, but it's a zeal without knowledge. And both of these things can lead to unscriptural methods and ways in which the gospel is moved out of the center of evangelism and missions. Let's think about this a little bit more specifically. What's evangelism? Uh, here's a definition that comes from a book called Today's Evangelism, Its Message and Methods by Ernest C. Riesinger. It's a, a book that came out, I think, in 82, 1982. Um, but he gives a simple definition of, of what evangelism is. He says this, Evangelism is the communication of a divinely inspired message that we call the gospel. It is a message that is definable in words, but must be communicated in word and power. For our gospel came unto you in word, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. That message begins with information and includes explanation, application, and invitation. The thing I want you to notice, what's very clear, is evangelism has to have the gospel, the evangel. It is the message communicating the message of the gospel. And if you lose the gospel, if you don't keep the gospel as central in your evangelism, what are you left with? If you take the evangel out of evangelism, you're just left with an ism. And so you need to have the gospel as central. The same thing is true then in missions. Remember our definition that we had from Andy Johnson. He said, what is missions? Missions is the unique, deliberate, 
gospel mission of the church to make disciples of all nations, evangelism that takes the gospel across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic boundaries that gathers churches and teaches them to obey everything that Christ commanded. So both, evangelism, it's a communication of the gospel itself, of the message of the gospel. Missions, it's the carrying of that gospel, taking that message across certain cultural or geographic or linguistic boundaries. So you must have the missions, must have the gospel. There would be no missions, there would be no true biblical missions if there is no gospel. We know the gospel is itself, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, it is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It is this message, this message of who Christ is, who God is, who we are, what Christ has done to save us, the required response, these things, this message, is what God has ordained as the means by which, and the power of God by which, men and women are saved from their sin, from Satan, from death, from the wrath of God. So the gospel is a central thing. You, you know how Paul summarizes the gospel. You remember the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, where he gives a brief summary of the gospel. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Now he's giving there, of course, a summary, uh, which can be expanded and filled out. But the Gospel focuses on the message of who Christ is in his life, death, resurrection, ascension. And so, we must have the Gospel. It's by this Gospel, he said, that they were actually standing, standing against Satan and his schemes, standing against sin. It's by it that they're being saved, and they have to hold fast to it. Certainly, it's, it's more than just these three things that he mentions, but here's a summary. The way Will Metzger likes to speak of evangelism in his book on personal evangelism called Tell the Truth, he says what we're to do is to take the whole gospel to the whole person, that is, mind, heart, body, by whole people, completely or wholly by grace. As I said, sadly, the gospel is not always kept central or even in the periphery. Sometimes the gospel is pushed completely out. And though you have those who are professing Christians or even those who claim to be churches doing work that they call evangelism or doing work that they call mission, the gospel is not to be found in any way. And that is a great travesty. And not only that, it is ruinous to the glory of God. God's not being glorified by such evangelism missions, and it's ruinous to souls of men and women as well. 
Let's consider then just some of the ways in which the gospel has been pushed out from being at the center of evangelism and missions. And the first is the loss of the necessity of the gospel. It's a sad reality in our day that there are some who think that it's not necessary to hear the gospel or to know the gospel in order to be saved, in order to be a Christian, um, and it's lost in that way. And it comes down to the question, the question that says this, is Jesus the only Savior? Is He, to put it another way, the only way in which we can be reconciled to God? Or are there other ways? Are there more than one way? And so there's three main answers that are given. And yes, these often are given by those who are professing Christians even. Um, But three kind of answers that are given. One is no, he's not the only way. Another one is a qualified yes. Yes, he is, but... We'll talk about that in a moment. And the third is yes, period. He is the only way. There is no other way for someone to be saved. Well, the first one, answer that says no... That he's not the only way is what we know of as pluralism. Pluralism. And that's the idea, again, that there's multiple ways in which you can come to God. Those who hold this view will say things like this. Well, every religion is of equal value. We, we shouldn't exalt Christianity above any other religion. We're, they're all the same in a certain sense. They, they get to God. It's the whole, there's all different roads that lead up the mountain to God. Uh, they may wind in different paths and go in different areas of the mountain, but, but they all end up in the same place. That's, that's part of it. Um, you can see this, for example, maybe when you watch the news. Uh, David Sills speaks about a time where after the travesty of, of 9-11 and the destruction of the world the towers, Um, there were the memorial services afterward. And he just remembers watching, for example, on CNN, how there was one of these memorial services and perhaps a prayer service. And up on the stage you have, yes, uh, the pastor from uh, the evangelical church. You have also the imam. You also have the sheikh, Sikh, I mean, and and you have um, the different world religions being represented. And the message being put forward is they're all the same. We're all together. We just need to uh, link arms together and, and encourage one another and all just get along kind of a thing. Other ways that, that pluralism comes forward is, is people say, well, all truth is God's truth wherever it's found. Uh, if it's found in the Quran, well, then it's found there. If it's found in the Bhagavad Gita, well, then, then there's truth there. So all truth is, is God's truth, whether it comes in the scriptures of the Holy Bible or somewhere else. Uh, one way to respond to that is to say, well, all lies are the devil's lies. And so, yes, uh, there can be true things that are said, but there it's filled with lies and also the other reality that a half-truth is really no truth at all. Another way that people who hold to pluralism speak is they'll say, well, as people have responded to natural revelation, uh, they are saved by their sincere worship. 
They respond to the fact that God is the Creator and, and they see the wonders and the glories of what He's made. Uh, this past fall, I had the, the opportunity to travel to the, to the Grand Canyon and to, to hike it with my father-in-law and brothers-in-law. And uh, it's a majestic view. You stand there on the rim and you see just what God made there at the Grand Canyon. It's breathtaking. And then to actually go down into it and to be at the bottom hiking through and then at night to see the vastness of the stars. And one of the travelers, we, we met various people along the way. Uh, one man decided that he was going to hike down one rim of the, cab, of, the, of the Grand Canyon and then come back. And uh, on his way there, he went, went through. Uh, we stopped and talked to him. He did it all in, all in one day. It's like 13 miles or something more or 20 miles. It's pretty, pretty amazing. But he was just talking about how marvelous things were that, that, God, that were made and, and how it's like a place where he can, he can just worship. Now his understanding of who God was or is as we got into some more conversation was kind of a God of his own making. And those who hold to pluralism would say, well, that's fine. He just has this sincere worship as he sees creation. He's okay. But the reality is, uh, sincerity doesn't save anybody. You can be sincere, and you can be sincerely wrong. Uh, You can sincerely drink poison and think that it's going to make you well or help you, but it'll kill you. Um, So, this is the problem with pluralism. We'll see uh, in a slide in a moment that this is actually something that even professing Christians say. Well, what about others? Others will go on and they don't say that just everybody can, in their own way, come to God. The second position is that of inclusivism, where it's disqualified answer, yes, but. And here they will say, yes, Jesus had to die for people to be saved. He had to be their substitutionary atonement. But, but they, they would say it in this way, yes, Jesus had to die for everyone's sins, but you don't have to know about it. So you don't have to actually have heard the message of the gospel. You don't have to actually respond to it. The fact that he died, that's enough. It's all, all that there, there has to be. Um, and so there isn't any sense of the need for a response to the gospel, the need for actual regeneration in the heart, uh, an intellectual understanding, but not only that, transformation within the person themselves. That's left off in inclusivism. They'll even say it this way, God knew that you would be raised in a country, if you're someone from another country that doesn't have access to the gospel, you knew that you'd be raised in a country without access to the gospel, or in a country that was prejudiced against Christianity as something from the West. God knew that, and as he put you in that place, he knew you wouldn't have access to it, so there were other ways and other things that, that that he worked, the main thing is that he died for you. It doesn't matter if you understand it or not. Another way that it's put is this, that Jesus in his work on the cross actually included Islam and Buddhism and other world religions in it. And so while it's not as clear in them, uh, there's enough of that and he, he died for those who hold to those things. Another way that it's put is this, All people are saved by the merits of Christ, but some of them just don't know it until they die. 
um, a Roman Catholic theologian, I believe, named Karl Rahner. He he spoke uh, during Vatican II and other other things, 60s, 70s later, of, of what was called uh, the anonymous Christian. Again, it's someone who has no idea what Christianity is and has never heard the gospel, but because the work of Christ can just be applied in that way without them even knowing, they're an anonymous Christian. They don't even realize it, but they are. So that way they would say Christian salvation is possible through non-Christian religions. But if that's the case, well then what do you see in the Scripture? Think even about how Jesus himself, in his own ministry, who did he come to? Who was he speaking to? Uh, he was speaking to the Jews. And particularly in his own day, many who were the teachers in Israel, but who had uh, fallen away from a full understanding of what the Scriptures taught in the Old Testament, that they actually were revealing the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You think about how Jesus met with Nicodemus. In the middle of the night, when Nicodemus comes, in John chapter 3, does does, does Jesus say to Nicodemus, you know, you're good. It's, it's fine that you don't fully understand who I am. I'm going to do a work that's for you. you can, you're already a part of the kingdom of heaven. No, that's not what he said. He said, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. He called him to repent. He called him to be regenerated in that sense. Or think about what happens in the book of Acts. Again, we're going to get into more of these things next week. But think about how God works to call Peter to go see Cornelius. Cornelius was a God-fearing Gentile. And he gives, remember Cornelius, an angel visits him, tells him to send up to Joppa for a man named Peter. Peter also, remember, has that vision of the sheet that comes down and all the different animals And God says, rise and eat, kill and eat. Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And tells him that these men from Cornelius' houses are coming and that he's to go with them. And so he goes all that way. And what does he say? Cornelius, wow, you're a real sincere guy. You're a God-fearing Gentile. You're good. I don't know why God had me come all this way. No, he didn't say that. Of course not. He actually proclaimed to him the gospel of Jesus Christ, who Jesus was, what he came to do, and called them to repent and believe. And as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon them so that they regenerated, responded with repentance and faith. Many other things that we could think about. Uh, So there you're talking about Jews, Judaism, God-fearers, even those who were Old Covenant saints. In the time of, of the transition between the two, they had to hear the message. They had to come and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So inclusivism also uh, falls short. Slide 11, uh, I have a, a quote here from the book Tell the Truth by Will Metzger. He uses this kind of analogy called the SS Evangelical Gospel. Imagine, he says, picture a gigantic cruise ship filled with happy people. It's the SS Evangelical Gospel. In the midst of their fun and excitement, passengers have not noticed holes in the ship under the waterline. Well-meaning leaders are attempting to plug them with new methods, technology, social activism, and cultural savvy. All these are important, yet they are not 
the life-saving message of evangelism. The structure of the ship has been compromised by years of neglect. Its truth framework has begun to deteriorate. Biblical illiteracy among evangelicals increases. Theological discernment between truth and error is slighted. In June of 2009, a survey found that close to 50% of evangelicals believed people who follow other religions, atheists included, would end up in heaven. The cruise ship may sink. The lifeboats are beginning to fill with people. Painted on their sides is TMD, Therapeutic Moralistic Deism. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. But the point that he's making is, there are those who are professing Christians. The survey, 50% of evangelicals said, yes, even those who are atheists or other religions, they're going to be saved, they're fine. They've fallen into either inclusivism or pluralism. And you think, what does that do for missions? What does that do for evangelism? If they don't need to hear the gospel in order to be saved, if they don't have to repent and believe, then you've just cut the whole impetus for evangelism missions right out from under it. There's no need to do it. There's no need to go. Why spend all that energy? Why spend all that money? Why travel halfway around the world and give your life to that cause of taking the gospel to people if it's not necessary to hear it or to believe it? So that's why our position, of course, and the biblical position is exclusivism. Is Jesus the only way? Yes. Period. There is no other way for someone to be reconciled to God, to come to a saving knowledge of Him, to be made in a right relationship with Him. It's a position that's founded on two fundamental truths. Jesus is the only Savior. There are no other Saviors, none other that can save but Him alone. But not only is he the only Savior, the second is also important, especially for inclusivism, against inclusivism, that is, that explicit faith in him is the only door of salvation. You're saved by grace, yes, it's the work of Christ, but through faith. United to Christ by faith. The empty hand that clings to Christ and his finished work for us. You must believe. And as Paul says in Romans 10, in that what's often called the golden chain of world missions. How will they hear? How will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless there's a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? And so, exclusivism says, not only is Jesus the only way and the only Savior, people must hear and believe and respond in faith and repentance. Of course, some of the verses I note on this slide of course, Acts 4.12, you remember there is where Peter comes before um, Sanhedrin with the other apostles. And he says to them in boldness, as the Spirit gives him that boldness, there is one name under heaven by which men must be saved. And that name is none other than Jesus Christ. You can see some of these other passages, John 14.6, for example, speaks where Jesus is in the upper room, and that great statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father in John chapter 6 except through Him. 1 John 5, 11, and 12 are other passages as well, um, and John three sixteen to 18, many others that we could list. But the scriptural view is that Jesus is the only way. If we lose that, 
then we've lost any impetus for the gospel uh, to be taken out through evangelism and missions. So that's one major way in which the gospel is pushed out of the center of evangelism and missions. What's another way? Here's another way. The loss of proclaiming the gospel through replacement. That is replacing other things in the place of proclaiming the message of the gospel. Uh, Doing something else. Maybe good things. Maybe even things that we're commanded to do. But making that as a replacement for proclaiming the gospel. One way that's happened, um, well, let me give you in this next slide, is the danger of losing or redefining the gospel. Do you agree with these statements commonly voiced by Christians? This is taken from Will Metzger's book, Tell the Truth. I enjoy getting the gospel out by tutoring inner city kids. I show the gospel to the homeless by helping them find medical help, food, and shelter. I rejoice in witnessing to the gospel through the activity of helping at the local soup kitchen. I proclaim the gospel by standing up for the rights of those who cannot speak for themselves. Now, each of those things are all good things. Tutoring inner city children, uh, helping them, that can be a very helpful thing. A church can be involved in doing that. That can be a good, good work that's done. But helping a child with their math is not the same thing as proclaiming the gospel to them. Now, while you're doing it, maybe you do actually speak. But just tutoring them in math, for example, isn't actually proclaiming the gospel. Again, helping the homeless to find medical help, food, shelter, uh, those kinds of diaconal things, good works, helping the poor, ministry towards the poor, uh, that's a good and biblical thing. We're to care for the poor, as Jesus tells us. But to say that showing them where to find medical help, that is evangelism. That mixes categories, I would say. And it can be a problem when it's replacing, proclaiming the gospel. Again, other good things. Soup kitchen can be good. Uh, Speaking up for the rights who can't speak for themselves. Past Sunday, we thought about the sanctity of life and the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade and the horrific reality of abortion in our country and speaking out against that is right and good counseling those who would go to uh, abortion mill or whatnot is a good thing as well Uh, but unless you're actually speaking the message of the gospel that's not the same thing as proclaiming the gospel Listen to what Will Metzger says. The problem of equating social activism with the gospel and evangelism. Increasingly, evangelical Christians are realizing that social justice and the gospel go hand in hand. Good. But some evangelicals are stretching the gospel to equate it to loving service. This may be a result of how the gospel has changed us. But social action, as important as that is, is not the gospel. It is a result of the gospel being lived out by caring for others. Churches need to be more circumspect regarding taking, regarding taking a firm position on social and political issues. Yes, individuals can organize to address issues without requiring the church to take a position as well. Again, he's making, uh, I think, a very important and helpful distinction to say when we are 
evangelizing, or when we are doing missions, which is taking the gospel, it is actually speaking the message of the gospel, not merely our actions. Again, don't hear me saying that we shouldn't be doing these other things. Christians should be doing these things. Although I would say that a lot of those things, the focus should be done by Christians as individual Christians, not necessarily as the church. Here I again refer you to the book, What is the Mission of the Church? by Gilbert and DeYoung, which they address this issue, I think, in a very helpful way. You know, one of the New Testament words for proclaiming, or even for the message of the gospel, is the kerygma. The gospel is a word message announcing good news. In other words, if you're going to evangelize, you must actually use words. Don't fall into the trap that St. Francis of Assisi said, or at least he's attributed to saying whether he really said it or not, is, uh, you know, I, I preach the gospel, use words if necessary. No, if you're going to preach the gospel, words are necessary. You can't do it apart from words. Uh, someone who is proclaiming the message, is the, it's a herald. Someone who is sent, as it were, from the king, with a message from the king, and you, as a herald or an ambassador, must give that message faithfully, not adding to, not taking away, as we'll talk about in a minute, and doing what you've been charged with doing, proclaiming that message, announcing some event. Vern Poitras, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, said this, In a vision, Paul saw a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Remember that from the book of Acts. He concluded that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. It says in Acts chapter 16, verses 9-10. Well, what did he do? He did not begin to feed and clothe the poor. Help change the laws of, regarding slavery? No. Improve health conditions in the town? No. We find him preaching a message which called for a response. That's what Paul did when he went over to Macedonia. Read what he does in Philippi, Thessalonica, that whole region. So, it's important for us to see uh, that the gospel, if it's going to be proclaimed, if we're going to evangelize, if we're going to do missions, we actually have to speak the message of the gospel. Now, certainly, missionaries may be involved in some of these other things. Caring for the poor, caring for orphans might be part of what they do in showing the love of Christ. But, unless they're actually speaking the message of the gospel, then evangelism is not actually taking place. Again, those things should be held together, not split apart. Some, some of the reason that we've seen perhaps a swing into a push for social action and social justice is because of, in the 20th century, or the turn of the 20th century, the whole push of what's known as the social gospel, and even in missions, how, and we'll talk about some of this later on, uh, missions kind of had a shift from this whole idea of people being made disciples and becoming Christians and gathering as churches, to caring for the needs of feeding Christians, you may have heard of a book called The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. She was actually a Presbyterian missionary. And a part of her, her whole shift was instead of focusing on the gospel message being proclaimed, uh, but to feed and to teach how to grow rice. And the idea of, of 
rice Christians and other things like that as part of part of what happened uh, in that. And so, in response to that, there was kind of in fundamentalism, particularly a response that said, "Well, we're just going to focus on proclaiming the gospel." And they retreated in many respects from the rest of, of society in certain ways. Um, so there was this this polarizing effect. And then some have kind of discovered, well, really, Christians should be involved in both aspects of things, and even in their doing of good works, they should be bringing the message of the gospel. Um, But then some kind of, in the evangelical world, I would say, kind of pushed too far that way, and then just started saying, well, just by our actions, that's enough. So trying to, to, to say that that's a problem, and that would lead to the loss of keeping keeping the gospel at the center of evangelism and missions. Um, Carl Henry gave five principles to guide the church in relation to social action and other things. One of the things he said is this, I'll give you some of these principles, these five principles. He said, the Bible is critically relevant to the whole of modern life and culture, the social, political arena included. So the Bible certainly speaks to and addresses those things. But the institutional church has no mandate, jurisdiction, or competence to endorse political legislation or military tactics or economic specifics in the name of Christ. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom in that sense. Again, it's not to say that the scriptures don't have things to say to those um, who are in places of government or whatnot and even how they go into these things. But the church as the institutional church, it's not its role to govern uh, with a sword through politics. He goes on to say the institutional church is divinely obliged to proclaim God's entire revelation, including the standards of and, or commandments by which men and nations are to be finally judged and by which they ought now to live and maintain social stability. In other words, as we're preaching even in our churches, there are issues in our culture. We speak to them as the scriptures address those things. Um, that is an important part of even in our preaching. The political achievement, fourth principle, of a better society is the task of all citizens and individual Christians ought to be politically engaged to the limit of their competence and opportunity. Here you see he's making that distinction between the church as an institution and the individual Christian. Individual Christians ought to be engaged in these other arenas in these ways. And lastly, he says, the Bible limits the proper activity of both government and church for divinely stipulated objectives. The former for preservation of justice and order, and the latter the moral spiritual task of evangelizing the earth. You can put it this way, if the church doesn't evangelize, who will? This really is the special specific mission of the institutional church, the church that Christ instituted. He has given us, entrusted us with. You see that language throughout the pastoral epistles. We have been entrusted with that good deposit, with sound doctrine, with the evangel. It is our task as the church of Jesus Christ to then proclaim this message, to take it really to the ends of the earth. One last way to mention that we can um, lose the gospel. The loss of the gospel can come through the addition, adding to the gospel, or through subtraction, taking away from the gospel message. I'll give you just one example of addition. Of course, in Paul's day, you think of the letter that he writes to the churches in Galatia and Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, he says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, 
but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You know uh, what's going on in the churches in Galatia. There are those that we call the Judaizers who have infiltrated those churches that Paul planted on his first missionary journey, I would say. And they are coming in and saying to the church, if you're really going to be a Christian, it's yes, you need to have faith in Christ. You need to believe that message that Paul preached to you, yes. But you also need to become one who is also like the rest of us Jews who become Christians, Jewish Christians. You you need to be one who follows all of the Old Covenant laws and have the markers of being an Old Covenant member of God's people. That is, you need to be circumcised if you're going to actually be a true Christian. Have that mark. It goes back to the Abrahamic Covenant. Uh, you, need to, you need to also follow the dietary laws. You need to remember it's these things, things that God instituted. He gave, he gave them to Moses on the Holy Mountain. And so we need to Follow the clean and unclean laws. So on and so forth. Holy days and, and all of the, the different ceremonies. So these are some of the things that were, were going on. What does Paul say? He's saying that this is a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. This is what we can call the gospel plus. What you've heard said, maybe, the Jesus plus gospel. Yes, you, you need to believe in Christ. You have faith in Him. That's fine. But you also need to add these other things. Now, there's many ways that that can be done in our own day. Uh, for example, you think of the Roman Catholic Church and their understanding, for example, that uh, for you to be justified before God, it's not only what Christ has done for you, but also it is your good works that stand in, make you counted uh, right before Him. Those kinds of things, any kind of works salvation uh, or even addition of works to what Christ's work has done for us would be an example of adding to the gospel. It can happen in, in certain ways, perhaps in churches that, that have a legalistic bent, for example, in which they would say, okay, yes, yes, you need to hold to the gospel in these ways, but also you need to have your hair cut in this specific way. <laughs> or you need to have uh, clothes at this length, or, you know, those kinds of things. You refrain from blah, blah, blah. So you get the idea that that happens in our own day, and when that happens, the gospel has been moved from the center. Perhaps you've also seen it in other ways, in, in, in places where pet doctrines or, or even uh, interesting other views or strange views can become the central message. Maybe you've been in a church where an issue that should be an issue of Christian liberty, for example... Um, schooling of your children. Do you use a Christian school? Do you use a home school method? Do you use uh, public school uh, matters of, of Christian liberty? Certainly there's wisdom in those things and decisions. But a church that says, well, if you're a real Christian, then you must homeschool. If you don't homeschool, then uh, you're suspect, brother. Maybe you're not even a brother. right? And so taking a, a kind of peripheral issue and making that what the message is, that's part of the way it's this gospel plus can happen by adding to the gospel, making that a requirement. But perhaps 
what we see more commonly in our day is the subtraction from the gospel, where the message of the gospel is reduced, it's truncated, it's made small. Um, when you look at the book of Acts, Stacy Woods in, in a book called God's Initiative in Ours, he says this, Truly the essence of the apostolic method was not some all-consuming effort to reach as many different people as possible with the message, but rather subject to both the leading and the enablement of the Holy Spirit, the first century Christians labored in a strategic center until a nucleus of believers are formed into a local church. Evangelization was not some truncated message of the plan of salvation, but a declaration of the whole counsel of God. It was then left to the local company of Christians to maintain continuing evangelism in their community. You remember the words of the Apostle Paul when he gathers with the elders from the church in Ephesus there in Miletus. It's in Acts chapter 20. One of the things that he says to him, and remember, he had been in Ephesus for about three years or two and a half years, but he says to them, I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God to you. He didn't just pull out his little first century four spiritual laws tract and say, these are the four things you need to know, and that's about it, and now I'm moving on. No, he spent that time teaching them, day after day, the whole counsel of God, not a truncated gospel. But as you may know uh, from other courses or just your own uh, learning and reading, this idea of the simple gospel really came into vogue around the turn into, from, from the 19th to the 20th century, about 1900. It's the idea of packaging the gospel into this small way. Um, and it had roots in the methods of Charles G. Finney, a man who was an evangelist back in uh, the 19th century, 1800s, during the Second Great Awakening period of, of the American church. A man who actually was uh, sent out from the Women Mich Women's Missionary Society of, of New York from the Presbyterian Church. Um, but the idea here of this simple gospel is it views the gospel as a pill that's a cure, a cure-all. It's received through some quick mental ascent of the hearer, and that's it. That's all that's needed. Of course, what's the problem with this? It's not clearly proclaiming the whole gospel. It's often a truncated teaching on sin, or that's left out altogether. Come up to people and ask the question, are you saved? And sometimes the response is, saved from what? R.C. Sproul has a helpful little book called Saved from What? Uh, so what are some of the ways in which this becomes a problem? What happens then is the gospel isn't centered, uh, in our evangelism isn't centered in the gospel or in Christ or in God. It's actually centered on man and some of what we see with this simple gospel, truncated gospel presentation, for example, is, is the way that it views God, uh, man, Christ, and the response to the gospel, it's truncated. Here I, I give in the next several slides just some of the, uh, some of the differences between a man-centered or a me-centered gospel and a God-centered gospel. This me-centered gospel is this truncated gospel. Uh, versus a God-centered gospel. These charts are found in that book, Tell the Truth, uh, by Will Metzger. So what's a view of God in a truncated gospel, or, or in a very kind of gospel, simple gospel as a pill approach? Well, often it's 
God loves you. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And so what happens is God's authority is blunted. His ownership as creator is left out. And love is kind of the only attribute of God that's spoken of. And God is kind of viewed as this wimpy, weak God. Well, in a God-centered view, in a biblical understanding, a full, whole counsel of God view of the gospel, we start off, one of the things, speaking about the view of God, is that they're creatures made in God's image. Uh, Those who are made to reflect Him, to reflect His glory. And God, as their creator, owns them. He has rights over them. And he is a God not only of love, but also of holiness, of justice, of truth. And so, it's a view of God as, as he is, our holy, just, loving king, who comes to save and redeem. A view of humanity in a truncated gospel can have a view that man's fallen, but has ability to choose God, um, or can seek truth, but lacks, just lacks the correct facts, just needs a little bit more, um, makes certain mistakes, he's sick, maybe ignorant, but give him a little education, give him a little help, he'll be okay. But a God-centered view, a whole counsel of God view, would say that man is not merely sick, he's dead. He's dead in his trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2. His mind is at enmity with God, he will not seek God, he's a rebel against God, And what he needs is for God, the Spirit, to regenerate him. Humanity is spiritually dead and lost. A view of Christ in a truncated gospel, it's Jesus is a Savior from our failures, maybe also from from hell. He's our get-out-of-hell-free card. He exists for our benefit. Um, His death is the main thing, and there's always a focus on the cross without any focus on his life righteousness, how he fulfilled the law for us, and there's an emphasis usually only on the priestly role then of Christ. And what's needed is an attitude of submission to Christ's lordship that's optional as long as you just accept him as a savior is what some have said in the past. You know, the, maybe the lordship salvation controversy. But a God-centered view would say he's the savior from sins and our sin nature and from hell. He exists to gather a kingdom and receive honor and glory and uh, his, his life fulfills our obligation to God. It's not just his death, but also his righteous life. And so it emphasizes all of his offices as prophet, priest, and king. And we must bow before him as our king. And then the response. What happens with this truncated gospel often, or gospel presentation, is, as you may have experienced yourself, it's just an invitation He's just waiting for you. And, and what you need to do is some kind of external act. Perhaps it's praying a prayer. Or it's going down an aisle. Or it's raising a hand. As long as you give some kind of mental assent to what you've been told in this quick, brief presentation of the gospel, you've made a decision, then that's enough. You're saved. And many of you maybe have experienced that or, or you know about that. And really, it's sinners who have the key to their salvation in their hand. But a, a biblical, God-centered view says that Jesus gives to us a loving command that needs to be obeyed. He calls all men everywhere to repent and to believe. 
And we will respond not merely with just mental assent, but with our whole being as we're regenerated, our heart, mind, and will. We will then have a love for Christ. And these truths are driven home in the conscience. We're saved by this work applied to us in this full-orbed way. And so you see, there's a huge difference. And, and in our own day, this is probably one of the major ways in which evangelism and missions has lost its, the gospel by the gospel being truncated and its various uh, methods as well. Uh, maybe, maybe you've seen things like chick tracks, these cartoon tracks, and other things. Just Again, they, they truncate the message of the gospel, and it's the idea of getting uh, a minimum amount of information to the maximum amount of people. When really in the scriptures what we see is there is a maximum amount of information to as many people as God directs us to as possible. So a maximum to the maximum is really what we ought, ought to do. Well, let me just close then with this quote from J.I. Packer. What then is this evangelistic message from his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which I highly commend to you as well? Uh, he, he says this, Paul's primary task in evangelism was to teach the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. What was this good news that Paul preached? It was the news about Jesus of Nazareth. It was the news of the incarnation, the atonement, and the kingdom, the cradle, the cross, and the crown of the Son of God. It was the news of how God glorified His servant Jesus by making Him Christ, the world's long-awaited Prince and Savior. It was the news of how God made His Son man, and how as man God made him priest and prophet and king, and how as priest God also made him a sacrifice for sins, and how as prophet God also made him a lawgiver to his people, and how as king God also has made him judge of all the world and given him prerogatives which in the Old Testament are exclusively Jehovah's own, namely to reign till every knee bows before him and to save all who call on his name. In short, the good news was just this, that God has executed His eternal intention of glorifying His Son by exalting Him as a great Savior for great sinners. Amen. So we must keep the Gospel at the center of our evangelism, of our missions, remembering that it's a message to be proclaimed, a message that's centered upon Jesus Christ, for the glory of Christ, the glory of God, and the good of lost Sinners who come to him by faith. Well, amen. That's what I have for the time. Um, Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church and is calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.